Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. We've got a lot on the program. The uh, filibuster of the January 6th Commission, national voting rights legislation, there's a lot going on. But uh, number one, uh, well, actually, I'll get to number one in just a second, but <laughs> there's this bizarre story about why prosecutors are having a hard time cutting plea deals with the uh, Trump insurrectionists, with the seditionists, the traitors who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. But I also have this larger question, and I think it's a, a really important one, and, you know, that I put before you today, as well as, you know, the rest of the world, and that is, was January 6th worse than 9-11? I mean, just think about that for a minute, right? We're, de we're debating whether or not to have a commission to investigate January 6th like we investigated 9-11. We're having discussions of January 6th as if it was, on the one hand, some sort of major historic, this has never happened before, or the last time this happened was when Abe Lincoln was president, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, you know, people like Congressman Clyde from Georgia saying, well, you couldn't have told the difference between what happened on January 6th and a normal tourist day. I mean, it just it was a normal tourist day. What, what are you all upset about? Come on. There is a 250 gigabyte leak of memos from inside the Washington, D.C. Metro Police Department that was obtained by a uh, ransomware company. And they said, you know, pay the ransom or we're going to start releasing your private memos. Now, some of these private memos actually include the names and incident reports of individual police officers who have been accused of wrongdoing. So it's embarrassing to the Metro DC Police Department. But what's interesting is they've started releasing the documents. They started releasing the documents last week. And what's interesting is that there was this operation, this program that they were tracking, they and the FBI, and we're seeing a lot, I mean, these are not leaks from the FBI, but there are a lot of memos between the FBI and the DC Police Department around what they referred to as Popcorn Day. The program was actually by the people who were doing it, who were the white supremacists who were marching on the Capitol with the intent of murdering the Vice President and the Speaker of the House and, and presumably any other member of Congress who got in their way. Those people had their own name for it. They called it Operation Stormbreaker. But the D.C. Metro Police were calling it Popcorn Day. Why? Because you will hear all kinds of pops all across America. If Operation Stormbreaker was successful, and this was, by the way, planned for January 19th, which is the day before Joe Biden is inaugurated president. It's the day before the peaceful transfer of power from Trump to Biden. That January 19th was supposed to, at least according to the files 
not supposed to, but you know, there's a very real problem possibility. Certainly, if the FBI had not gotten aggressive and started arresting people after January 6th, I think it probably would have happened. It was, well, this is from Jacob Shamsian at uh, insider.com. The plans called Operation Stormbreaker involved targeting landmarks, government buildings, power plants, and other civic institutions on January 19th. All across America, we would have explosions going off as a way of creating such a wild disruption across America that Donald Trump would have to remain president to deal with the crisis. This is uh, from The Guardian, a piece by Jason Wilson. They also had a plan C. If, if Operation Stormbreaker didn't work on January 19th, they had another plan for February. Quote, almost a month later, a bulletin reported that an unidentified militia group member in Texas was claiming that if their operation failed at the U.S. Capitol, there was a backup plan involving the group detonating bombs at the U.S. Capitol during the State of the Union. So, I mean, just take a look at what this, at what's going on here. Funded and supported by billionaire oligarchs in the U.S. and abroad, we have a movement here to turn America from a democratic republic into a basically a white supremacist ethnostate oligarchy fronted by the GOP. And I mean, just look at what they got away with or what they've done so far. I mean, for centuries, first off, white cops have gotten away with routinely murdering unarmed black people and other minorities. Over 15 million people went into the streets to protest the, uh, the police murder of George Floyd. And the white supremacist authoritarians in the Republican Party made common cause with corrupt cops rather than trying to reform a corrupt system, number one. Number two, male white supremacists in Michigan nearly succeeded in kidnapping Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer so that she could face a show trial and public execution on TV, on the Internet. They invaded and seized control of numerous state capitals. They did it here in Oregon. One of the Republican members has been charged with opening the door for them, letting them in. While the National Guard forces were held in advance, they've turned Facebook and social media into recruiting tools for violent white supremacist activity. And now they're reaching out to young people with their movement. They're spreading lies and doubts about the COVID vaccine to prevent Biden from getting control of COVID and thus getting control of the economy. The Capitol Police report, this is a report from last week from the Capitol Police, quote, this year alone there has been a 107% increase in threats against members of Congress compared to 2020. And 2020 was no picnic. Donald Trump was whipping up political violence as much as he could in 2020. They're passing laws in state after state to forbid the teaching of the actual history of what America has done to minorities in this country for 400 years. Almost the entire Republican Party is publicly lying about January 6th and what led up to it and promoting Trump's big lie that Biden didn't really win by 7 million votes. They're using that big lie, Trump's big lie, to actively rig the 2024 election. They're actively closing polling places in communities of color. If citizens and states don't like this, you have three states, Florida, Idaho, and South Dakota, that just in the last two weeks have passed laws saying you can't put stuff on the ballot anymore. You want to put a ballot initiative on that says that, you know, the votes actually get counted by professional vote counters rather than the state legislator deciding who won the election? You can't do that anymore. They've introduced 144 laws like this in 32 states. They packed the Supreme Court. I lay this out in, you know, the hidden history in the Supreme Court book. I'll tell you, that's where it's at. So then we look back at 9-11 and what happened with 9-11 and, and how, you know, Iraq was an easy target and and Bush, well, without giving you the whole backstory, consider our response. I mean, our response to 9-11 was we spent over a trillion dollars enhancing our security. We created new police agencies. We took Hitler's favorite term, Homeland, and started the Homeland, you know, securities, Office of Homeland Security. We unnecessarily declared war on two countries. This is the Tom Hartman Program. I'll finish this up on the other side of this break, but the question, you know, was January 6th worse than 9-11? I think so. Steve in Queensbury, New York. Hey, Steve, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's on your mind? 
I wanted your opinion on January 6th. I think it was a coup, and I think all those people should be held for treason. I agree. And I probably should have made my point and then supported it. I constantly tell people when they call into the show, make your point first and then add the, you know, the supporting material, and I failed to do that. My point in that whole rant that I just did, Steve, is that January 6th was an attempt to actually end democracy in the United States. 9-11 was an attempt by a guy who was pissed off at us to give us a bloody nose, basically. He wanted to hurt America. But he wasn't trying to end America. He wasn't trying to change America. He wasn't trying to do away with our democratic process. He wasn't trying to, you know, to assassinate the vice president of the United States or the Speaker of the House. None of that. He just wanted to hurt our country, mostly because he was pissed off that we still had soldiers at the Prince Sultan Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia. I mean, that was bin Laden's principal complaint. So, yep. you know, I think to your point, I think your point is really well made, Steve, and I can't disagree with it. Thank you, Tom. Yeah, good talking to you. Thank you very much for the call. And it just, it seems to me that there's almost no contest. And when we think back on what we did in response to 9-11, and you compare that to what we're doing in response to these attacks right now, it's just... You know, the difference is breathtaking. Robert, listening on X-Ray FM in Portland. Hey, Robert, your thoughts. Yeah, hi, Tom. I think there's a big difference between January 6th and uh, 9-11 and how many deaths there were, but there are some similarities, and that is that the government knew that the January 6th insurrection was happening. Donald Trump told the National Guard to take care of the people that were protesting that day. That was in a, a leaked memo, I think, from Miller. So there's there, the, thing is, is the, the similarities is that there is obvious orchestration going involved. I just don't think that the 9-11 Commission report didn't even bring up World Trade Center 7. What good is having the Capitol Police look into trying to get, you know what I mean? I don't think that. Yeah, the 9-11 Commission anything. didn't look into any of the predicating stuff because it would have reflected badly on Bush and Cheney, you know, which is really unfortunate. And I don't know if they mentioned Building 7 or not, but I'll take your word they, for they it didn't. that they didn't. But you said more people died on 9-11. A half a million Americans had died by January 6th. And January 6th was an extension of this, of a whole series of big lies that Donald Trump had been telling, including his big wait, lies wait, about wait. the, half the a million, coronavirus. Wait, 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 half a million people die? From the coronavirus. Half yeah, a million but that, was from two, that was from two years ago in a Wuhan laboratory funded by Dr. Anthony Fauci. Dr. Yeah. Anthony Fauci did the EcoHealth Alliance. Right. EcoHealth Alliance funded right. gain-of-function research. Right. Robert, I'm assuming that you're just, like, being sarcastic, right? That you're not really that, that dumb? I'll just assume that. Anyhow, we'll be back. Harbin here with you. So just to recap, 9-11 was an attempt by a guy who was seriously pissed off at the United States, Osama bin Laden, to hurt us. He was angry with us for two reasons, and he laid these out. He laid them out explicitly. Number one, back in 1991, George Herbert Walker Bush was president. He was looking at the next year, which was going to be the election year, so he was getting ready for the election. Bill Clinton was winning the primary, and he was like, okay, I need you know, to get my popularity numbers up because they weren't all that great. So uh, let's do like Reagan and Thatcher did with Grenada and the Falklands, and let's have a little war, an easily won little war, a short war, a two- or three-day war. And that's exactly what he did in Iraq. Kuwait had been slant drilling underneath Iraq to get the, to steal their oil. Saddam Hussein was pissed off about it. You know, he asked April, April Gillespie, uh, the Bush's uh, liaison from the State Department, you know, uh, if I attack Kuwait, are you guys going to have a problem? Bush, you know, through, through her basically said, no, no problem. He attacked Kuwait, and th that was exactly what George Herbert Walker Bush needed. He had his three-day war. He pushed the Iraq out of Kuwait and uh, ended his war and said, okay, it's all good. And then he started the sanctions. 
sanctions that lasted for decades and killed just in the next 10 years over half a million children because one of the things they were sanctioning was chlorine. It could be made into poison gas, you know. It's also used to purify tap water. Public water systems use chlorine. And that's why a half million children died from diarrheal diseases from dysentery. So bin Laden was just trying to hurt us because he was upset that when Bush the Elder invaded Iraq, he needed a local Air Force base to base that invasion out of, and the Saudis gave him a place called the Bin Sultan Air Force Base. So, okay, here, this is yours. And we filled it full of Americans, and we used it to bomb the crap out of Iraq, and then we stayed there. And we were still there in 2001. And being a good Saudi, you think, you know, like Jerusalem is, is a holy site to Jews and Muslims, especially to Jews because it's, you know, it goes back. Saudi Arabia is the site for Islam, right? I mean, that's where Mecca and Medina are. And true believers, the, you know, the Saudi true believers believe that the entire country is sacred land. And so here, and, and bin Laden believed this, so here on this sacred land are American soldiers, the men are drinking alcohol, watching porn, the, the women are showing their elbows and knees and driving cars, oh my God. And bin Laden warned us about this, by the way, number one. And number two, bin Laden felt that, that we were basically stealing the oil from Saudi Arabia. This is what bin Laden wrote. Uh, it was published in the New York Times on February 23rd, 1998. The Arabian Peninsula has never since God made it flat, created its desert, and encircled it with seas, seas been stormed by any forces, like the Crusader armies spreading in it now like locusts, eating its riches and wiping out its plantations. For over seven years since Bush's Iraq invasion, the United States has been occupying the lands of Islam in the holiest of places, the Arabian Peninsula plundering its riches, dictating to its rulers, humiliating its people, terrorizing its neighbors, and turning its Air Force base in the peninsula into a spearhead through which to fight the neighboring Muslim people. That was bin Laden in 1998 telling us if we didn't pull out of Saudi Arabia, he was gonna hit us. And that was the warning that Bill Clinton gave to George W. Bush, that Al Gore gave to, to Dick Cheney, and the Sandy Berger gave to Condoleezza Rice. Look out, he's coming. Bush, by the way, in 2003, April 2003, pulled all the American troops out of that Saudi Air Force base. About the same time, he stopped looking for bin Laden. Bin Laden turned out to be a family friend of the Bushes. That's a whole other story. You can, I mean, this is, this is not weird conspiracy stuff. You can easily look it up. And then, of course, Bush let the bin Laden family fly out of the U.S., with basically no checks and, and, and very little oversight. So we did this whole huge thing, right? We had, we spent seven, we added, Bush and Cheney added $7 trillion to our national debt for their two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, both absolutely unnecessary. Afghanistan had offered to arrest bin Laden for us. Bush said no. Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11. Arguably, Afghanistan had nothing to do with 9-11. It was all Saudis flying those players. 17 of them were Saudis. But the Saudis were good buddies with the Bush family, so uh, that's, and with America. So that ain't happening. I think that 1-6, January 6th, I think January 6th was more destructive and more dangerous to the United States than 9-11. It was an actual attempt to take down democracy. Bin Laden in his wildest dreams never thought he could end democracy in America. He thought he could hurt us, he could register his complaint, and maybe we would respond as Bush did in 2003 by pulling the soldiers out of Saudi Arabia. That was, that was the limit of his goals. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. These guys and their enablers like Rick Scott and, and Josh Hawley and Ted Cruz, they want to take down democracy in America. They're actively working to do that right now. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals 
from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance, so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. I'm reading from Chapter 4, titled An Army of One. Two years after the incident at Cape May, Bo's failure still ate at him. He never told his parents what had happened. The day they shipped me out, a thought occurred to me, and it stayed in my mind whenever I thought about the Coast Guard, he told General Dahl, and that was that I wanted to fix that. Those who knew him knew Bo was struggling with something. He would never say what it was, but the tension was plain. He spent more and more time in his room at Anna's. There was no bed, no couch, no TV, but on his days off from work, he stayed there, sometimes for days at a time. Fontaine and her other new roommate heard him yelling at himself. I can't believe you did that. That was so stupid. Some of his friends worried, but Bo never complained, and around men in particular, he carried himself with stoic severity. Women saw a more concerning aspect. In the Harrison's kitchen, one of Kim's friends grabbed his hand, flipped his forearm over to reveal the neat rows of cuts. You have such nice arms, she said. What the heck are you doing to yourself? I'm getting ready, he told her. What are you getting ready for? Pain. Bo, what on earth are you talking about? I'm just getting ready. Enough time had passed where I got uncomfortable again with not doing something that was making a difference, he told Dahl years later. His parents put him in touch with their pastor from Boise. Phil Proctor, who was ministering with seminary students in northeastern Uganda. Bo told his parents it sounded interesting. He could go to East Africa and teach villagers self-defense techniques. But the timing didn't work out. All the seminary spots were taken. That spring, Bo's seeking came full circle. He remembered meeting another Coast Guard washout who told him that if he wanted to, he could re-enlist. The Army was stressed for new warm bodies. His family knew he had been thinking about it. Whatever you do, don't join the Army, his sister and Albrecht told him. It was a bit of the old Army-Navy rivalry coming through, but Skye also believed that the Navy took care of its own in a way that the Army never had. His mother agreed, but didn't think Bo would actually enlist. Days later, when she saw him on the highway driving back from Twin Falls in his motorcycle, she knew that he had. At the Army recruiting station, Bo was a young man in a hurry. He told the recruiter that he wanted to become a scout, a soldier who takes risky missions to track down enemy positions. The recruiter told him there were no more slots available for scouts, but that he had three openings in the infantry, which would fill up fast if Bergdahl didn't act quick. He offered him a $5,000 signing bonus to sweeten the deal. In the spring of 2008, the Army had lowered its recruiting standards to levels not seen since the end of the draft. Five years earlier, at the start of the Iraq War, 94% of new recruits had high school diplomas. By 2005, that number had dropped to 71%. New soldiers with what the Army defined as Category 4 intelligence, those who scored in the 30th percentile or below, were accepted. As Iraq burned, their numbers rose, rising from just six one-hundredths of a percent of new recruits and up to 4%. Convicted felons could secure a waiver from a sympathetic officer 
and they were accepted too. Physical fitness standards dropped. Recruiters fudged paperwork and coached problem cases like Bergdahl through background checks. His Coast Guard diagnosis was no longer disqualifying. He simply signed a form prepared by his recruiter stating that he had overcome his earlier issues. Bergdahl's waiver was approved in late May 2008, and he was issued orders to Fort Benning, Georgia, for Infantry One Station Unit training, where civilians were turned into infantrymen. His parents didn't take the news as badly as Bo had feared. Janney was relieved that he would no longer be traveling the world alone. Bob thought the structured life would do him good. Reading the news at the time, he also believed that the Taliban was on the run and the risk of serious combat was low. He's barely going to get in on the war in Afghanistan, Bob recalled thinking at the time. It's almost over. Kim and her brother took it much worse. Mark Ferris's heart sank at the news. The last they had talked, Bo was planning a two-week wilderness trip in the Yellowstone River in a sea kayak. It was a wild idea and would be a rough trip, but Ferris thought it could work. The Army would not work. If there was a human being unfit for the Army who should never have joined the Army, it was Bo, said Ferris. He was naive, idealistic, good-spirited, a very gentle person, and a gentle soul. Anna Fontaine was equally concerned. Why was this a better idea than the Coast Guard? You tried this before. It didn't work. Why are you putting yourself through this again? Bo told her he was older now and had matured. I was naive then, he said. I now know what to expect. Anna had grown up in the South near Army bases and told him he wouldn't like the rough culture. It didn't matter. He was dead set on it, she said. He was gung-ho. Her parting words to him were, keep your head down, don't be a hero. During two weeks of in-processing as an infantry trainee at the Army's 30th Adjutant General Reception Battalion, Bergdahl learned that the Army didn't care for his feelings, his opinions, or his time. He stood in one line after another for physical exams, for drawing equipment, and for having his head shaved. His free time was spent in an open bay starship barracks filled with bunk beds and his fellow recruits. 2nd Battalion, 58th Infantry, House of Pain, was one of six training battalions on Sand Hill, a section of Fort Benning reserved for basic training. Each battalion was led by a lieutenant colonel. Within the battalions were six companies, each led by a captain and a first sergeant. There were four platoons in each company led by drill sergeants. And the book is American Cipher, Bo Bergdahl and the U.S. Tragedy in Afghanistan by Farwell and Ames. The prosecutors, the federal prosecutor, you know, they've arrested 400 plus people for sedition or variations thereof on attacking the U.S. Capitol to try to murder the vice president and murder the uh, Speaker of the House to uh, bring to a halt the proceedings of certifying the election. A lot of these people who are facing substantial sentences, I mean, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30 years in prison, are refusing to cut plea deals. And the prosecutors have been trying to figure out why. I mean, normally when you arrest four or 500 people and every single one of them is facing decades in prison, substantial portion of them cut plea deals. I think over 90% of all criminal cases in the United States are resolved with plea deals. It's a huge number. And in the case of the January 6th insurrectionists, that number is like, it's running around 2%. Why? Well, it turns out, Scott McFarlane uh, reporting on this, he says, uh, one defense attorney handling some U.S. Capitol insurrectionists cases tells me that there's a complication for plea agreement negotiations. He says, some defendants think that Trump is going to swoop in and save them. They still believe that Trump is still president and that the Biden presidency, I saw one clip where one of them said, Oh, he's just cleaning things up. That's just Trump through Biden or Trump letting Biden kind of clean things up, put our infrastructure back in place and give people some unemployment benefits. These are all things that are fine with Trump that Biden's doing, not to worry. When the rubber hits the road, when the time really comes, Trump will come back out and reassert that he's president. When he does, he's gonna pardon everybody. Yeah, he pardoned Mike Flynn. You know, a guy who clearly a traitor was taking money from foreign governments while he was our national security advisor? 
I pardon Paul Manafort, who took, you know, committed massive tax fraud, took tens of millions of dollars from Russian and Ukrainian oligarchs and, and did their nasty work for decades. And he pardoned him. I mean, you know, look at the people he pardoned. He's clearly going to pardon us. So we don't have to do plea deals, just like Roger Stone didn't have to do a plea deal. Or the other guy who did a plea deal was Michael Cohen. And he's out there warning us that Trump is going to flip. Everybody's asking, you know, is Ivanka going to flip on Donald? Is Don Jr.? Is Eric going to flip on Donald? Weisselberg is the head bookkeeper going to flip on him. Cohen comes out and says, eh, you guys are asking the wrong question. Is Trump going to flip on them? Trump is going to claim, oh, Alan Weisselberg, I just trusted him to do what was right. Oh, Ivanka, you know, we gave her that $700,000 in consulting fees. We figured she reported it. Don Jr. and Eric, all those times that they committed fraud, you know, selling our properties, that was them. That wasn't me. None of this was my idea. All that money from Deutsche Bank, that, that was uh, Anthony Kennedy's son. That was Justin Kennedy's fault. This is the prediction that Cohen has, and I think he may well be right. I think he may well be entirely right. But anyhow, let's pick up your phone calls. What do you think about all this? Teresa in Augusta, Georgia. Hey, Teresa, what's up? why 9-11 got the response it did because it was them that was the cause of the, the tragedy. Outsiders, basically. Yeah. Okay. 1-6 come along and the reason why everybody's tiptoeing around it because these are, you know... This is us. Like, oh, they, yeah. you know, they felt like their elections was taken, but I noticed through history, most of these white nationalists, these supremacist people, they tend to be extremely violent when they can't have what they want. Yeah. They will destroy, and then they want to cover it up, and then they like, no, 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 this is the history we want you to know. We don't want you to know about all that. It's like they trying not to face up to what they really are. Well, they got away with it once before, uh, Teresa. Yeah. You know, I mean, they got it. You know, the Civil War. The, there was a period of Reconstruction that you know basically lasted from 1866 to 1876 for 10 years, and that was it. That was it. Then, yeah, then it just all got papered how over. How dare you want to bring up the past? How dare you want to tell the truth about what happened? Exactly. You know, it was a bunch of tourists. It was peaceful. Yeah. Yeah, no, you I'm, know, I'm with you. This yeah, is they control the narrative, so they that's that's how they're getting over. Yeah, that's why they get over in the state legislatures. You know, because they don't feel like they have to hold account to anybody yeah. except what they desire. Yeah, thank you very much, Michael in Antelope Valley, California. Hey, Michael, you disagree with me? I actually grew up in New York there during 9/11. I had a couple friends who died in the Iraq War, which directly came from 9/11, mm -hmm. and I just wanted. Yeah, you know, I've been listening to Pacifica Radio for a while, and when I listened in this morning, to hear you say and compare January 6th with 9-11 and the wars that followed, I was just really unimpressed. I wanted to hear you justify that. Sure. 9-11 caused a lot of damage, right? Osama bin Laden succeeded in damaging our country, in weakening our country. George W. Bush's tax cuts during that period of time cost us $5.6 trillion dollars. The two wars have cost us $7 trillion. It has hurt our reputation around the world. But bin Laden was not trying to end democracy in America. He wasn't trying to end a 240-year experiment. No, he wasn't. He was trying to get us to, and he said so. He was trying to get us to withdraw our troops from bin Salton Air Force Base and raise the price of oil from $32 a barrel to $100 a barrel. That's what he said. I had read the book, The Collected Writings of Osama Bin Laden. It came out back in 2005. I talked about it for two weeks on this program after I read that book. I went back in writing this piece for Harvard Report today. How many people died on 9-11 itself? How many people died? Oh, 3,000 people died on 9-11, and about a million people have died as a consequence of 9-11 in Afghanistan and Iraq. But democracy in the United States... And democracy around the world, which I believe, and maybe I'm just, you know, some weird American exceptionalist, but we are the, the richest, the largest, the most powerful country in the world. And if democracy falls here, it's going to start falling rapidly everywhere else. It's already fallen in about 10 countries just in the last 15 years or so. Democracy is under assault. And that's what these guys are doing with January 6th. They're not going after 
trying to get America out of Iraq or trying to make up for killing Muslims or something like that. They're trying to end democracy in the United States, Michael. Gary in Naples, Florida. Hey, Gary, what's up? It was an attack on our Constitution. Period. End of story. Right. And, there, and there's a reason why in the oath of office you are asked to defend the Constitution, not the country. Because without the Constitution, this country is just a piece of land. Osama bin forgotten. And this is just my gut feeling. His primary motivation was revenge. I read what he published in 1998, where he said the holy lands of Saudi Arabia have been defiled by American soldiers who were put there by President Bush back in 1991, go. and we want you to remove them. And that was, by the way, that fatwa followed multiple writings by bin Laden that are in the collected works, the collected writings of bin Laden, in which he was complaining about Americans being on Saudi soil. He felt it was blasphemous. Keep in mind, this was a fundamentalist, a Muslim fundamentalist. Tom Harvin here with you. And apropos of what has happened to the Republican Party, Steve Bennon, who is the producer for Rachel Maddow's program, has been a guest on this program. He's, he wrote a book, I don't know, a few months ago. Steve was on. I'm sorry, I don't recall the title of the book, but it was an excellent book. It's a, it was a fascinating conversation we had with him. He wrote a piece over at the Maddow blog where he's like asking the question, where are the mainstream Republicans? Where are these middle-of-the-road Republicans? Where are the rational, sane, not absolutely bat guano nuts Republicans? Who are they? And as far as he can tell, there's a very small number of them. There are about 10 of them, <laughs> 10 Republican lawmakers who both voted to create the January 6th commission and to certify the results of the 2020 election. And that's Liz Cheney of Wyoming, Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, Jamie Herrera Butler of Washington State, John Katko of New York, Adam Kinziger of Illinois, Peter Meyer of Michigan, Dan Newhouse of Washington State, Fred Upton of Michigan, and David Velladio of California. And that's it. And, you know, when you compare 10 out of the, how, you know, the, all the Republicans, that's about 4% of the Republican Party are the moderates. I mean, do we really think that they're going to, like, take their party back? I don't know. I think it's getting fascinating. It's getting really fascinating. Charles in Los Angeles. Hey, Charles, what's on your mind? I agree with you. The insurrection was a success. There was a Confederate battle flag in the dome that the Civil War never produced. Yeah, it is not yet failed. a success, but it's, we will know, I think, by January of 2025. If a Democrat gets elected president, but a Republican gets sworn in, we will know whether January 6th was a success or not. I think we'll know that in, in, two, in two years. Well, you may well be right. And in 2023. Yeah. The only reason the insurrection succeeded is because there was an insider stand-down orders for mm -hmm. that. But that means other insiders. Biden needs to go for a, a reconstruction. They're calling it Reconstruction 3. And the number one thing it needs to do is abolish slavery and all the state constitutions and their institutions and laws. That means reforming the prisons, the police. Well, the it means essentially rewriting or, or overturning or whatever the 13th Amendment, which allows slavery in the United States as long as it's done under color of law. If you convict somebody of a crime under the 13th Amendment, they still may be held in slavery in the United States. And using that word, yes. slavery. Yes. And all the state constitutions need to have equal rights amendments, economic rights of FDR, basic income, wages that are based on purchasing power and not a number, not only just the pursuit of happiness, but a right to thrive because you cannot contribute in society without it. To I think that's that life liberty part too, you know? Yeah. What I call an eye care tax, which is a rich man pays so that he has some skin in the game. He has to pay for all failures. All the top 15% of the earners pay for all failures. And that way you'll get them to put in carbon tax on the industry because they will not want to pay it. 
and uh, doing things right the first time oh, that's prevention if we, is if, penny. That's a brilliant idea, James. If we were to pass a law, and let's, instead of the top 15%, because to be in the top 15%, I think you only have to make about 80 or 90,000 bucks a year. If it was the top 1%, which I think the uh, cost of admission there is around 300 grand a year. If we passed a law that said the top 1% have to, uh, their taxes will vary, and their taxes will be used to pay for all toxic site cleanups, all the Superfund cleanups, and all damage that can be traced to climate change, and all damage that can be traced to industrial operations where companies declared bankruptcy and walked away, you know, coal mines and things like that. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, I think you'd see our laws change and our regulatory agencies get a whole hell of a lot stronger. Yeah, it costs pennies to do prevention and do it right the first time. Yeah. But if you have to pay for tutoring, bad health care, if you have to pay for all that stuff, we'll have single pairs so fast it'll make your head spin. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Yeah, paying for the damage that was done to children in Flint, Michigan for the rest of their lives. Dave in Federal Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Events of 9-11 are connected to what is going on right now. But I think you are right. January 6th is worse. Look, 9-11 opened up an opportunity for these more fascistic elements, and I mean small F fascism, okay, these more fascistic elements to do policy, okay? One thing is... is They were called the neocons back then you're talking about. The Cheney bunch. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and believe me, we've all fallen for it. The right wingers have won so much that we don't even realize it. Right. So anyways, I started noticing this. People that were presented as experts on Islam knew nothing about it. I dug into it a little bit. OK. By quietly interrogating them. They didn't even realize I was doing it. They knew they didn't know anything about Islam. They knew it was a fraud that they were being presented as an expert. And they also don't care. Because what it allows them to do is to get everybody basically conformity. It forces a conformity. And on 9-11, Osama bin Laden killed 3,000 people and hurt America, in quotes. George W. Bush and Dick Cheney used that as an opportunity to turn us closer toward a police state to set us up for authoritarianism, to vastly expand our internal spy capabilities, and I'm going to get into the rant about this in the next hour, and to establish new international norms that I think the president of Belarus, Lukashenko, just took advantage of, which is that we started this rendition from and to countries that were not the United States, where we would snatch people we didn't like in one country, move them to another country, torture them to death, and wipe our hands of it. Yeah, in that regard, January 6th did enormous damage to the United States, but it wasn't bin Laden who did that damage. It was us. We did that damage to ourselves. And we're doing damage to ourselves again through January 6th by saying that, you know, the Constitution is not what matters. What matters is having a white ethnostate. Thank you for the call. Dan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Dan, what's up? It's obvious that January 6th was the worst thing to happen to this country ever. At least since the Civil War. I want to preface this by saying that my dad was one of the 67 guys that was in the 101st Airborne that walked out of Bastogne alive. My dad fought fascists. We are in a situation where the fascists are going to take over. I'm alarming my friends. I'm doing what I can do. But when that Confederate flag showed up inside our capital, that is just too darn much. Yeah. Yeah, it's and, you know, the Confederacy was, by most definitions, a fascist government. It's certainly, you know, they were certainly yeah, running a, a police state, a police ethnostate. Yeah, I finished reading Robert E. Lee and Me. If you haven't read it, I haven't. It's, uh, I don't even yeah. know about it. I can't remember the man's name, but it's really easy to find the title. No, he was a Southerner. And he went to school and everything, but then all of a sudden he joined the Army and got himself a Ph.D. in history and found out he had been lied to all of his life in the South, along with the religion. Right, about the war of northern aggression, you mean? Right, yeah. that. And he, well, the thing about it's very important that, you, uh, that everyone read this. And, and that lie is back election. now, Dan. Not only are they lying about Trump, you know, losing the election and all this kind of stuff, mm-hmm. or winning the election, <laughs> saying that he won it. They've passed laws in numerous states now, and, and you've got laws that are being proposed in 36 states right now to yeah. outlaw the teaching of American history. 
Yeah, I know. And I'm here in Omaha, Nebraska, and our problem is that our rural people are Trump followers, and they hate us city folks. Yeah. Yeah, and there, and and that hate is being uh, engendered by, promoted by, frankly, uh, right wing media. Dan, right. thank you for the call. Spot on. Quick math: the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This Ryanair flight, Ryanair is, as I recall, an Irish airline, and it was flying from Greece to Lithuania. Now, uh, Greece, of course, is part of the European Union and, and the Eurozone. Uh, Lithuania, I don't know. I've been there. I've been to Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia, the three countries right, you know, right in a row there on your way up to Finland and just north of Poland. In fact, we, we took a train from Poland through them. And I believe Lithuania may be part of the European Union, but not part of the economic zone, but not sure. In any case, although Lithuania was a former Soviet state, neither one of them are in the, shall we say, Russian sphere of influence. And whereas Belarus is, Belarus, uh, Belarus and Russia are allies. In fact, Russia is basically uh, the president of Belarus, basically his only, his only ally, Lushenko. So the extraordinary thing here is that, you know, this plane was flying from Greece to Lithuania. It's, it's over Belarusian airspace. There is a reporter on board who is a citizen of Belarus and his girlfriend and he was the one who was one of who kind of spearheaded the reporting on how corrupt the the uh, Lushenko government was. Uh, Alexander Lushenko, Lukashenko, excuse me, the president. The reporter's name is Roman Protesevich. Yeah, I'm probably mispronouncing it, but uh, pro, it looks like Protesevich. And uh, so they 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 scrambled a jet just as they were about to leave Belarus airspace, scrambled a jet, intercepted this commercial jetliner, forced it to land in Minsk, the capital city of Belarus, said there was a bomb on board. They had to search the plane. They searched the plane. All they discovered was this reporter and his girlfriend, who they kept, and then they let the plane leave after seven hours. Now, this is creating some problems, shall we say. First of all, NATO and the European Union are, you know, shall we say, quite upset about this. The uh, minister of uh, the Honorable Grant Shapps, member of parliament, who I believe oversees the, uh, the air, whatever you would call it, you know, their equivalent of the FAA in the United Kingdom, says, following the forced diversion of a Ryanair aircraft to Minsk yesterday, I've instructed the UK CAA that would, uh, I'm assuming this is their equivalent of the FAA, 
to request airlines avoid Belarusian airspace in order to keep passengers safe. I have also suspended Bolivia's operating permit. Now, that would be the uh, airline that operates out of Belarus. In other words, you can no longer fly into the United Kingdom. Now, I don't know if they have regular flights into the United Kingdom or not. I don't know if this injures them at all. But there's a, there's a couple of points here that I think are really, really worth noting. The first is that this is establishing an extraordinarily bad precedent. There are a lot of airlines, a lot of jets from a lot of countries that fly over a lot of other countries that are, have serious problems with their own members of the press and things like that. There are a lot of places you can't get to without flying over parts of China or Russia or, or countries that are, are not even anywhere near those as large as those two that have a history of trying to arrest journalists where they could conceivably claw an airplane out of the sky to selectively arrest somebody aboard it. And, uh, and, and if you were to extend this to say, well, it doesn't just apply to the air, it applies to the sea, then China could claim the right to, to, to seize any ship or for that matter, any airplane crossing the China, South China Sea which could uh, do some serious damage, for example, to Taiwan or Japan or South Korea, actually, uh, more to the point. So I think there's this sense that we can't allow this to stand. On the other hand, during the so-called war on terror, the U.S. and this, you know, to the one extent to which somebody might arguably say 9-11 did more damage to us than 1-6, is that hopefully we will recover. I, I don't think we'll know the answer to the question until 2025, excuse me, until January 2025. But if we can recover from January 6th, if we, can, if we can hold on to our democracy, then one of the ways that 9-11 did so much damage to us, and of course it wasn't bin Laden who did this, it was Bush and Cheney. And the, and the neoconservatives, you know, the whole, the whole project for a new American century crowd, is that they, they did this illegal, they would reach into third countries, illegally capture people, take them to fourth countries, to, to some distant country, torture them, in some cases kill them, and then just wash their hands of it. The, the, remember the black sites? Remember the U.S. torture? Well, Belarus has not, you know, come out and held a press conference about this, but the people who are taking their side in this, which is, you know, principally media out of Russia, are, but also out of Belarus, are saying, hey, we didn't do anything different than the Americans did. Now, there's another piece to this that I think is worth pointing out, and, and uh, tip of the hat to my friend Jim Turr, who, who pointed this out to me. Uh, the musician, uh, Blue Canyon Music. Um, he says, he sent me a note, he said, in case you missed it, uh, NATO and the European Union are expected to seek meaningful punishments to the Belarus regime, but, and this is a, a clip from a newspaper article, but nothing that would cause undue pain to the people. Now, Belarus is a European country. It's, a, it's an all, pretty much all white country. So we're going to do sanctions, but we're not going to hurt the people. But when we do sanctions in Cuba, oh, we want to squeeze the people as hard as we can. When we do sanctions in Iraq, we had a half a million children die just during the tail end of the first Bush administration and the Clinton administration because of, because of our sanctions in the eight, you know, that 10-year period. We, had, we, we imposed sanctions on Venezuela that turned that country upside down. We impose sanctions on Iran that have impaired their ability to respond to the pandemic and caused, you know, thousands, probably tens of thousands of deaths. But when it comes to white Europeans, uh, these are not people of color in Belarus. Uh, we're going to make sure that our sanctions don't cause undue stress on the people. We're just going to go after the oligarchs. Just kind of let that sink in. So anyhow, I think there's some fairly high stakes here. 
And if I'm missing something or if you uh, think that my analysis is wrong, you know, please let me know. Or if you want to add to that analysis, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it because it seems to me that this is a huge deal. If Belarus gets away with this, if, and, and even worse than that, if this, if this starts happening a lot, I mean, this, could, this is the kind of thing that could eventually, I doubt that this incident is going to be it because, you know, they grabbed a Belarus, uh, a Belarus citizen, Belarusian citizen. But this is the kind of thing that could become an Archduke Ferdinand moment. The wrong guy gets snatched from the wrong airline in the wrong place. You might have World War III breakout. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is In Putin's Footsteps, Searching for the Soul of an Empire Across Russia's 11 Time Zones by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. This is from the introduction titled In Putin's Footsteps. On New Year's Eve 1999, journalists in the Russian president's press pool had a feeling that things were going to change. They were right. The feeble and aging Boris Yeltsin, who could barely board a plane or stand for a 15-minute press conference, was about to deliver his end-of-the-year address in which he resigned and ceded power to his prime minister and hand-picked successor, Vladimir Putin. Once head of the Federal Security Service, the FSB, the post-communist democratic version of the dreaded KGB, Putin was indeed an unusual choice, having served as the head of the government for only a few months. But the 48-year-old ex-spy, who had become the youngest Kremlin leader since the Soviet Union's founders, Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin, had a quiet energy that seemed boundless, as boundless as the geographic expanses contained within Russia's 11, yes, 11 time zones. After taking over from Yeltsin as acting president on the first day of the new millennium, and after winning by a landslide presidential elections three months later, Putin, in the year to come, held over a dozen press conferences and traveled to almost two dozen countries and at least a quarter of Russia's 89 regions, which are spread out over 11 time zones. Altogether, he was seen in public and on television more often than Yeltsin during most of his eight-year presidency. Suddenly, the press had something to report. The news stories were no longer those of Yeltsin's Russia, which was perceived both at home and abroad as weak, insignificant, and a corrupt boogeyman reeling from his Cold War defeat. These were stories of an enigmatic young technocrat tirelessly crisscrossing the country and meeting with workers, farmers, and cultural figures, attending theater galas and factory openings. All that uplifting travel, Russia was starving for the Kremlin's attention, connected Putin to ordinary people and gave him the idea of delivering a rousing New Year's Eve televised address to the nation. Standing before the Kremlin's Spassky Tower just before the giant bells rang in the year 2001, under starry winter skies in front of a large snow-dusted Christmas tree, he pledged to counter the negativity of the post-Soviet decade and set the country on a new positive course. And this he did. In his address, the ardent young leader looked both charming and in charge when he spoke of Russia's great future, heroic past, and enduring spirit. Putin had often appeared a reserved technocrat, but soon he would demonstrate a talent for finding opportunities to impress the heartland. He knew the best way to get to people's hearts, showing them that his priority was returning Russia to the world stage as a major power of formidable dimensions. Originally, he had an even bolder plan for his New Year's address, and he had run it by journalists in his press pool during one of his trips around Russia. Without a hint of doubt in his voice, Putin told them that, quote, Russia is an enormous country, a great country. We need to remember that our strength is our size. What if I were to travel through Russia's limitless land in one night through all of its 11 time zones, stopping in each one at midnight local time to record a New Year's message to show our nation's greatness, our richness, the diversity of our mother Russia, our unity, and our worth? Even though Russia's time zones are exaggerated in number, there should be only seven, according to generally accepted geographic markers of Greenwich Mean Time. It's a 24-hour cycle, also called UTC. Maintaining them is not only a political matter, it is reflective of the national identity, state power, and international influence. Russia has 11 time zones more than any other country, and that, as Russians would have it, bespeaks its status in a way no one can deny. Often the time that appears on a nation's iconic clock, Big Ben in the United Kingdom, for example, or those daunting dials on the Spassky Tower in Russia's case, is a subtle way of representing where power lies. In Russia, every time zone is first referred to in relation to MSK, Moscow Standard Time, with UTC only following. Moreover, many countries don't even adhere to the 24-hour GMT UTC's neat meridians. China's huge landmass should straddle five different time zones, 
yet operates according to just one. Inhabitants of western China, if they follow their clocks, have dark mornings and light evenings. But nobody doubts that only the Beijing time matters. When Hugo Chavez became president of Venezuela in 1999, he created a new time zone that would set Venezuela 30 minutes apart from neighboring countries. That was his way of letting the world know that Venezuela was striking out on its own. But Putin's idea of showcasing his country's temporal and geographic diversity in just one night was certainly unique, and it accorded with his plans to return Russia to its lost great power status. It also sprung from what Putin knew Russians expect of their leader, something close to godlike status. Keen on creating a leader's image steeped in tradition, history, and mythology, often associated with the uniqueness of the Russian soul, spiritual endurance, persevering patience, belief in miracles, and material sacrifice. He wanted to be seen as the dead morose, the granddad Frost, the Russian Santa Claus, bearing gifts of renewed national importance and self-confidence. Capitalizing on Russia's size, 6,000 miles from east to west, Putin hoped to begin restoring his country's grandeur, once czarist, then Soviet, and now Russian. The idea was bold and beautiful, but unfortunately, unrealizable. The book In Putin's Footsteps by Nina Khrushcheva and Jeffrey Taylor. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.